When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yes, yes, yes. And welcome back to the Fresh Arsenal podcast with me, PB. And today we are joined by Carl. Hey. And we have Pat returning. Uh, another PB. Oh, don't, don't say that. That's confusing. <laughs> but we are, we are JB less today. Yes. Uh, he, he's in the red zone. Um, so we're rotating him out. Hamstring uh, niggle, apparently. Yeah, got, got a bit of a niggle. Um, but we have three of us today to discuss a 3-3 draw against West Ham, which was completely bonkers I think all of us and all Arsenal fans went through uh, a huge array of emotions throughout that game so we're going to take you back on the journey Uh, through this short bite-sized podcast we will try to squeeze in all the drama that happened and uh, give you our analysis on it so let's start with the team selection because that was quite interesting I was quite surprised personally with that one Um, Pat Take us back to how you felt before the game, um, before this drama happened. How did you feel when you saw the lineups come out? I was quite surprised that we saw Aubameyang and Lacazette in the same lineup. I think it's been a while since we've seen that. The other surprise, was, I wasn't actually surprised by Callum Chambers. I think I tweeted before it that I wouldn't be surprised if Arteta goes for that because when you have Chambers in there, you then have him, the two centre-backs and the two central midfielders who were pretty competent in the air. Aubameyang's pretty decent I guess on the front post as well from corners but whatever we could do to bolster that and I think you know having Chambers there was definitely good as opposed to having a Cedric or a Bellerin who aren't very good in the air so that made a lot of sense to me I actually thought that one of Gabriel's best performances of the season was against West Ham at home where I think I said this when we were talking on WhatsApp I've got a flatmate who's a West Ham fan and I think when we were watching the game together he kind of said something like oh you know Gabriel new to the league He's going to get kind of bullied by Antonio, the pace and the power. There's no chance he's going to, he's going to be able to handle him. And like, 
it just looked like man versus boy that game and i've never really seen antonio get like manhandled like that pretty much like he was really dominated that game and i think in the second half david louise did a really good job of him uh, on him when he pulled out onto his side but Mary never looked very comfortable with uh, him whenever he drifted on his side. And I just thought from the start, I was like, look, I know Mary is very good in the air and I'm sure Carl will give us some stats around kind of the, the, the aerial duels that our centre-backs win. But I would have sacrificed like that 10% of aerial duel winning, which I think Gabriel's still really good at, um, for the pace and the power that he possesses and also um, kind of how good he's been on the ball in terms of distributing in between the lines from the de- defence and, and out to Tierney as well. Um, so that was a surprise. I was quite gutted that Smith Rowe didn't start. Um, uh, and yeah, I, I was the Abamyang lacazette thing. I wasn't too sure about that. He's obviously kind of gone back into don't like Pepe mode. So I didn't really, ex- just <laughs> didn't really think he'd start. So, yeah, that, those were the only two surprises for me. Mary being there and the Aubameyang Lacazette thing. And uh, I guess Smith Rowe had a bit of a fitness issue, but those were the mm. only two concerns for me. Yeah, I think it's, it was interesting to see Aubameyang back out there on the left because it, it sort of feels like we'd moved past that. Um, I get it was complicated by the fact that Smith Rowe was uh, apparently not fully fit. Uh, William was obviously out as well. And I think if either one of those were fully fit, we might have seen something else. Obviously, there was the option of Pepe, but I still think Arteta, if you look back through his selections, he's had a right footer and left footer on both sides every time. So as I've said a few times now, it feels like it's Saka or Pepe um, on the right. Yeah. And there's not really a way to get them both in unless you you play Cedric at left back, which could have been a possibility because I think we saw from some of the regulars who did stay in the team, uh, the likes of Tierney, the likes of Xhaka, Louise, uh, and even Saka, um, weren't at their best. They're normally the, the players who really set the tempo for Arsenal, but I felt like they looked all looked a little bit leggy, um, especially at the start. Carl, what, what did you make of the lineup from a sort of analytical point of view? As I say, it f- feels like we've moved past having to put Aubameyang on the left. We were starting to play with three sort of technical players behind the striker and it was a very different shape do you think that sort of threw us off from from the way we started yeah I, I tweeted it out I think at halftime during the game about how our the resurgence in form um that we had saw in December you know when Smith Rowe and the others came into the team um it coincided with Arteta basically simplifying a lot of the stuff he wanted us to do um, and that's getting tactical players, like you said, behind the ball, um, but sorry, behind the, the number nine, whether that's Aubameyang or Lacazette. Um, and a lot of that comes with the fact that you have players who are cutting inside on their weak foot. So they're filling up central areas and uh, that allows tyranny on the left-hand side to get forward. Um, and Cedric Moore, when he's played, obviously, uh, since then, um, getting on the right. But it seemed like our uh, Arteta, I think I mentioned it when we were going through our bad form, was that he kind of showed the worst things that he inherited from Guardiola in that sense, and that sort of mm. overthinking a lot of things. And rather than just rotating players like for like, um, trying to basically reinvent the wheel um, to, to, to get around the sort of um, rotational problems that you had. Um, you know, part of that could be our squad depth. Obviously, we're not a very deep squad right now, so we don't really have like for like in each positions. Like, you look at Manchester City, if they don't have – you know, a player like uh, Bernardo Silva on the right, they can put in a player who's basically the same sort of uh, 
type of player in terms of uh, a style of play. Um, and we sort of have a, an odd assemblance of, you know, wide forwards or wide playmakers, mm-hmm. you know, um, obviously with Odegaard that helps because we basically have a, a player like Smith Rowe um, now. Um, obviously Odegaard's probably a better player at this point. Um, um, central positions, we have uh, Chaka and Partey, and then the level kind of drops down from that way. Um, in terms of progressions yesterday, like Partey, I think he made 14 progressive passes uh, in the midfield. Um, and then obviously Odegaard was the highest with 14, I think. Um, but the rest of our squad didn't really make any progressive passes. Um, and that's something that we we saw in the second half is that when Odegaard was able to get on the ball, um, rather than trying to go around West Ham, we had that ability to go through the lines. Um, mm. We didn't really see that with how the, the starting 11 started off. Yeah, I think you touched on quite a reassuring point there that um, Odegaard and, and Partey are really the most progressive players in our team. And they're obviously two players we've, we've brought in, one temporarily for now and, and one last summer. But they're two players who've been identified by the current structure um, of backroom staff and, and brought in, so I think it's it's reassuring to see some of these signings being bedding it bedded in, and you know we'll get to it later with Odegaard, but I think without him we we potentially completely collapse in this game. Yeah. Um, so let, let's jump into the goals then. One nil, uh, the Lingard the Lingard special. Um, Pat, did you? You know, we we talked about it off air. You think we perhaps some of our players could have done a little bit more and it wasn't, wasn't all about the brilliance of uh, no. Jesse Lingard. Yeah, well, first of all, it, it felt a bit too easy in the way that West Ham got down the left side in particular for the first 30 minutes. Like It, it took me back to the Villa at home game where Drummer Barkley, Grealish were just kind of playing and dancing around Rob Holding and Bellerin on the, on the right-hand side, on our right-hand side rather. And it kind of reminded me a bit more like of of that but more direct and Chambers was getting really isolated uh Louise was struggling to cover the runs I think party struggled as well um in terms of helping out on that side as well so there was a load of issues there but I think when the ball came out to Lingard he wasn't closed down quick enough that's that's one thing that's for sure uh, for sure I really have questions about Leno as well um on first reaction I think wow quality goal it must have gone right into the top corner because it was past Leno before he even got an arm out and then when I saw that kind of from Lingard's point of view goal where he sliced he sliced across it and it took me back to when Jagielka scored that screamer against Liverpool uh, to make it 1-1 and Gary Neville got quite a lot of flack for criticizing uh was it Mignolet at the time for not saving it um yeah. for, for not getting close to it I think Carl yeah you're, you're uh, yeah it was Mignolet yeah um I think that Leno, and we mentioned it in the last podcast, Ollie, that he's he's a good keeper. And I think last two seasons, he's been one of the top five, six, seven keepers in the league. This season, he hasn't really discovered that level again. But the other thing is, I have some worries about his footwork. And I mentioned it in the last podcast about the Kane offside header, where he looked at C. He didn't know what was going on. And then the Kane free kick that hit the post, his footwork was all wrong there as well. And I don't know if it's because he... It just seems quite heavy and flat-footed, but 
it took him an awful long way, long time to get across there. Um, and it's also like when the ball goes from the left-hand side back to the middle, you expect a keeper to go from front. Again, Carl, you're a goalkeeper, so you're going to tell me if I'm mm-hmm. saying anything stupid. Yeah. Here, but you're going to try and go from front post to protect the, the throat of your goal a lot more as soon as it goes into towards the middle to protect those angles. You don't expect it to get hit with that kind of swaz and like hit across it and it goes towards the top right corner. It just felt to me like he should have at least got closer to it. And I don't know, like I was at the time I was I was honestly furious um when I saw it from Lingard's point of view because I was like a, a bigger keeper, a keeper with better footwork and maybe a bigger reach saves that not comfortably but but definitely gets a pour to it. So I was quite annoyed by that. Uh, and Carl, I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I think one thing that I also um, I also noticed is um, it's become a common theme. I've kind of noticed from Leno, and I, I love Leno. I think he's a great goalkeeper. No, I'm same, not gonna, same. I'm not, I'm not going to get into the the Emmy Martinez thing. Yeah. I, I think I think we made the right decision. You know, Barcelona fans might get me for that one. Um, but I think one thing that he does do, which is troublesome, is he has the tendency, and it's it's actually a common trait of a lot of German goalkeepers. You see, Oliver Kahn did it a lot. Um, as soon as the shot is taken, as they're in the the opposition player is uh, in their in their backswing for the shot, they give a little hop before the shot mm, comes in, mm. and that is something of when the shot's coming in, it dramatically kills your your reaction time. So when the ball is already in the air, he's kind of on his way down from his jump, and that kills his reaction time by it's milliseconds, but it makes a big difference. So on the Lingard shot. Um, He's in the mid that mid hop as the ball has already left his foot, so he can't make that little step to the left he needs to to get the push that you required to push it over the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen it in other occasions as well, and also for uh, the second goal, which we'll we'll touch on more a little bit later. Um, obviously, he was left kind of you know his defenders didn't really help him there, but it's the same situation where he's sort of mid hop and he can't adjust his feet that little slightly, I think it might've taken a slight deflection, but that little second to move his hands across and get his full body across the ball, he, he loses that sort of reaction time. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think for, for the first one, I think it's a little bit harsh to, to, to blame him for the second one. Yeah. I think it's, uh, yeah, a little bit lack of confidence. I think I said last week, he, he looks like a player who's just lacking a little bit of confidence um at the moment and it's going through a bit of a difficult spell i do think he was he's traditionally been quite good when the rest of the team have been bad yeah, and yeah, not, yeah. not the best when we've mm-hmm. been good which is what a lot of people say you know the best goalkeepers have to be brilliant when they've not got much to do mm-hmm. throughout a game and keep their focus so maybe that's an area that he's uh he's not the best in at the moment the only thing i'll add on the first goal and I got battered for it after Chambers' second half. But um, I, I tweeted out that I wasn't particularly happy with, with Chambers in the first half. And I also, you know, I understand his selection and Marie's selection, as we talked about at the start. But I just feel that, you know, we, we've gone from Arsene Wenger, who never really thought about the opposition and, and was criticised for not doing it and, and making those kind of selections. But I just felt we sort of gave the initiative to West Ham with some of the selections. We were sort of, you know, putting in two defenders who probably wouldn't get into our strongest team if you don't think about the opposition. And sort of handing them the initiative to say, look, we're going to work to defend against you, which I didn't particularly like. And I think that helped help West Ham sort of have that confidence start. And whilst Chambers went on to have a great game offensively, 
I think he was brought in to help defensively. And for this first goal, he got the real runaround from Lingard. And that's what angered me. I thought it, the, what he's been brought in to do at that stage, he wasn't doing. He made up for it at the other end, big time. Yeah. But um, in isolation for that goal, I think it was a bit of a worrying sort of runaround if you watch yeah. his contribution back. It's always give and take whenever you, whenever you decide to have a specific player in your team, right? So if we'd picked a Cedric or Bellerin, they're probably quicker at getting out to the, you know, the overlapping Cresswell, um, Lingard whenever he drifted out, and Antonio whenever he drifted out to that, to that wing. But it also makes you more susceptible in the air. So it's always a, a give and take. Overall, I kind of understood it. I, I think that um, with having, you know, the whole Aubameyang on the right thing, uh, I think Arteta was hoping that that would pin Cresswell da- back. It basically did the opposite because we had this bail effect where Aubameyang just didn't run back with with Cresswell. So it, it was kind of, it literally did the opposite of what Arteta wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I think the Gabriel omission to me was stranger just because mm-hmm. of how well I've, I think he dealt with Antonio in, in the other, in the home fixture. So I, I understood the Chambers one, and I think he was pretty good defensively in the second half and very good offensively in the second half. So mm. overall, he did quite well, but there were some worries there. And I think if he is going to play on that wing, then Saka does need to play oh, on, on that flank. Saka does need to sit in front of him um, and really help him defensively. And also Party needs to do a better job of, of kind of uh, trying to fill that space that, that he needs support in. And also Louise needs to to help him and, and tell him where he needs to be and also sometimes sweep around and cover for him. So there's a mm. lot there. I'm not saying he's going to start every single game going forward, um, but he's certainly an interesting option that I, I thought did quite well. But, I mean, sh- should we talk quickly about the the, the second goal? Yeah, I think, um, I think we could do a whole podcast on the current right-back situation yeah. uh, in the squad, to be honest, because we've got... We've got three currently. We've got one out on loan. I don't think any of them are probably good enough long-term, but they will give us something slightly different. Yeah. Um, so we'll pick up that conversation another time. But let's let's quickly look at the second goal for West Ham, which was a quickly taken free kick, which caught pretty much the whole Arsenal team unawares. And again, a questionable moment for Leno. Carl, um, what's your take on that goal? Who was at fault? Was everyone at fault? Yeah, it was just... <laughs> It was another one of those examples of those goals where we basically we, we, we hand the opposition, uh, you know, a goal to start. You know, we've done it, Olympiacos. Mm. You know, um, obviously, um, I could go on <laughs> throughout the entire. Uh, yeah, or, I think since all the way back to the Arsene Wenger years, we basically find yeah. new interesting ways to um, to give up. And I, I think obviously, um, it was what 90, 96 seconds after their first goal. Mm. Uh, and it's sort of a theme of ours. As soon as we go one nil down in games, it's, you know, it's a, a lot of the players start to feel sorry for themselves. We, we basically, it was, the first goal was completely deserved from, from West Ham. They absolutely had our number. I think that they had about 96% of the ball um, those first 30 minutes. Um, but it's basically one-on-one, you know, you see it on Sunday league level is as soon as a foul is called, someone stands in front of the ball. You front the ball. Don't let them take it early. If you take a yellow card, you take a yellow card. Um, but it's just basically de- everyone complaining to each other, turning their back. Even Leno turned his back and faced his own goal. Um, mm. They take it early, and uh, you know it's two 0 pretty quickly. Mm, yeah. I, I just think as well, like I know everyone was so culpable in that 
party Saka, Louise, Mary, Tierney. I, I, again, I'm going to sound like I'm being so harsh on Leno, but it, it went through him. Let's be honest. Era, man. Like it's an awful, awful calamitous mistake. And yeah. I remember sitting there and saying to, to one of my housemates, I was like, look, if we, if we lose this three, two, like we're going to look back at this at, at dropped points ultimately because the ultimate person who is accountable for that going in is is um is leno and when you need your goalkeeper to bail you out of the team making mistake and come up big especially after you've just come gone one nil down keep you in the game i think like it was just so poor from him and it's not been talked about that much and again no one talks about the the mistakes he made in in the spurs game because we won it and not that many people have talked about it here because we came back and got a point, but it was another really big worrying sign for me. And I hope he does regain some of that form. Yeah, I think I think it's not been talked about as much because I think by the time it gets to him, so many people have made such big mistakes. But he's that... but he's but he's kind of alert to it, right? Like when the pass goes in, he's in position. Right? Yeah, but I think we're fortunate that the shots so poor. You, you know what I mean? Like well, mm. when, when we give that space to, was it Bowen who actually took yeah, the shot? Yeah. You know, he, he should be scoring or he should be passing it across to another West Ham player and they should be scoring. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a big mistake and, and he's got to, you know, take blame for it for sure. But um, I think you can't present, you know, that opportunity and expect to get away with not conceding ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we need to work on. We need to we need to stop it at source. Um, yeah. And yeah, as you say, Carl, I, I think a couple of weeks ago, we did a uh, podcast and I went through every goal we've conceded in 2021. And it was something like 80% of the goals were, you know, clear, direct errors from us. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the first goal from West Ham, you can't call that an error, really, even though we've picked it apart. But this second one definitely was another incident where, it's uh, caused by our own, our own faults, uh, our lack of concentration, and um, yeah, we paid the price for it. Yeah, and it's it's also that you look at our defensive record in terms of goals against, and I think it's thirty-two goals now, um, and that's the same amount as second place Manchester United, third place Leicester City. Um, you know, West Ham have thirty-five against Tottenham, have thirty-two against, or sorry, thirty against. Um, so it's not like our defensive record is absolutely, you know just appalling it's just you you look at it and it's frustrating because you look at it and say okay how many of those goals were preventable from mm. our own mistakes and our defensive record could be you know 25 goals against you know putting us on level with uh with like two goals chelsea um it's just frustrating to look at that because we we've we've shown increased numbers of threat in terms of our chances created for us yeah um, but we're still allowing teams to score goals against us just because of our own stupidity and, you know, lack of uh, awareness of situations. Yeah, exactly that. I think it's frustrating because, uh, you know, defending from open play until we make an error or or give, gift them a ball, give them a chance. We defend really well as a team. And and as you say, we should be right up there with Mm. our defensive record. So we need to iron this out. We keep saying that week after week. Let's move on to the third goal, which I was gutted about because I don't know about you guys, but when it went in, I thought he's definitely offside. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think Antonio thought he was definitely offside as well because you know that the TV made out that he wasn't celebrating because it wasn't his goal. But I think he was pretty convinced that yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
Chat I never even saw the the proper angle on it. I was, I mean, I'm not sure what if the broadcasting was different, but I saw it. They showed one replay where it was basically at a completely angle where it's impossible to tell. And they said, "All right, bar check over." And I was, it was on side pretty clearly. It was okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Well, that's that was that, that ruins a lot of my narrative. I was gonna have about, <laughs> about the, ref, the VAR referees just screwing us over again. But um, yeah. it was. Um, can you remember who it was playing them on side, Pat? Uh, I think it was Marie, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was someone's leg, and it was about it was a good yard. It's probably uh, a yeah. quite long leg that was Marie, I think. Yeah, wow. and he sort of pulled it away after it went through. But um, yeah, definitely on side. Really unfortunate and... goal to concede, but it's just one of those goals that goes in and is on side when things aren't going your way, right? And yeah, I just when that went in. Uh, it was weird, actually, because I was like, it's been 30 minutes. They've had three shots and they've scored three goals. So I was like, just by the law of averages, you think that this doesn't continue and we get a chance because I could see a couple of a bit of space and, and they weren't pressing as hard as they were for the first two goals. That Like they came out the blocks really hard and they were taking everything really quickly. They were pressing us. There was no space on the pitch. Like we were clearing it long and Lacazette was like in our own third. It was just it's all a bit of a mess. And they were really basically put their foot on our necks. But. Mm. towards the third goal that kind of slowed down a bit and we started to pass a little bit more after the first two goals had gone in and so when that third one went in I was like oh well three nil down but there is gonna like we are gonna probably score in this game and Mm. I guess uh that's what happened next right we 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 got the chance and we got the goal and um it was it looked like a good finish from Lacazette but in the end it, it was a uh a lucky one that was deflected and, and went in. Yeah, this was when uh, Chambers got forward really well and started to, um, he really had a lot of space out there on that right-hand side and made the most of it, picked out Lacazette, who had an excellent first touch. Second touch looked like it may have gone out for a throw-in if it wasn't deflected in by Suchek. Um So I thought it was quite funny that Lacazette, I don't know if you saw the post-match interview, when he tried to correct um, the interviewer to say that it was his goal, and they were like, "No, it's been confirmed as his own goal." Like, <laughs> that, that, that's a shame. I'm thinking, surely when you, when you strike that and the angle it was going off his foot, he knows that was nowhere near on target. But um, ultimately, he caused a nuisance, and I think he did that all afternoon, yeah. um, dropping in, picking up the ball. I thought it was one of his better displays, and even though wasn't a great strike from him which is a problem he he has for us a few times we saw last week it wasn't a great strike but he caused a nuisance won a penalty um which won us the game and this occupies defenders right yeah that's the thing about Lacazette uh like Mm. he's physically very imposing for his height Mm. um he's very powerful and he holds the ball up really well but above all he really does occupy defenders and when he's on them, he occupies them. And when he drops off, they don't really know what to do because he's almost playing in that false nine when he, when he drops in and lets the wingers kind of come in field. So he's not the best player in the world, but he must be really annoying to Mark, Carl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, he, obviously, like you, pretty much it's a buzzword now for any def- uh, forward who drops deep. You say, oh, he's a false nine. But the thing yeah. is, like, just he's, he's benefiting from the fact that 
Um, and I'm, it's going back to the players he has in support now. When he was struggling through that really bad period of form, when he was, the ball was, you know, bouncing off him, he, he wasn't having players. It was because a lot of the passes to his feet when he would drop deep were, um, were coming from very deep positions, so central midfield or even the fullback areas. And when he dropped deep, he would have no one underneath him moving or supporting him. And that's one of the things that you need to have as a center forward is you have to have players underneath you, um, you know, relatively you know, five or 10 yards underneath you so you can quickly bounce the playoff and spin off behind. And when you have Martin Odegaard, you have, you know, uh, Smith Rowe, you have Saka coming into those spaces and sort of or overloading those central areas. It makes him look a much better player than he already is because he has players who are just, who knows his intentions. Mm-hmm. Um Sort of in the first half when we were struggling to look at those areas, I'm looking at the pass maps that we, that we have at StatsBomb, basically. Um, and the passes to Lacazette are mainly coming from, from Mari, Luis, and Odegaard, who's still pretty isolated on that right-hand side. But in the second half, when we able, were able to get back into the normal rhythm we have, um, Lacazette has Aubameyang supporting him. He has Shaka supporting him, Party, Odegaard, uh, even Chambers and him linked up a number of times. Um, and when you have those sort of, you know, those possibilities to to play underneath and link up play, it makes his job so much easier because he can spin off players. Um, and with him dropping deep, that creates space in behind for the opposition players. So a lot of times, um, you know, he would drop deep and then Odegaard would get forward into basically o- occupying that role. Uh, Chambers overlapping, you know, Saka coming inside. Um, so they, they all sort of, it's a big domino effect when you can have those players in those positions. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I'm not Lacazette's biggest fan, um, but I think even in the games where he's poor, you can never accuse him of of hiding or of being out of games, um, which you can say for pretty much all our other players. Uh, Lacazette will always bring a level of passion, a level of effort um, to the team. And, you know, when you need a goal, when you need a turnaround even, um, he's a player that you, you want on on your team fighting for it. And we saw the benefit of that. Just before we get to the next goal, um, I want to touch on the early chance in the second half where Lacazette went through, I think it was from a Chambers pass, and uh, lobbed the keeper. On his way there, had a little tug at him. Um, and then his shot was cleared off the line. Would you guys like to have seen Lacazette go down? We've seen Lacazette... Yeah go down <laughs> under very minimal contact before. Yeah. I think it was because he was knew he was just outside the box mm. and he thought, you know... I think he thinks he can score. Yeah. Um, but he's before, very close to doing that. Before that, in the first half, we had the Saka chance though, right? Yeah, the Saka chance where he, was, he took it really early. And, really uh, early. So yeah. I was pretty convinced he'd take another shot, uh, another touch, um, and then put it front post. But it was, yeah, that's one thing that he obviously has to improve on. And again, when you're really young, the, the finishing kind of comes later to, to a big extent when players are quite raw. Like you even see like Mason Greenwood, who's an amazing finisher, be pretty up and down with it, right? So to, to get to that level of consistency, you do just need like games and games and games. But I was mm. I was still pretty disappointed because he is technically really sound. He, he usually strikes the ball pretty well, Saka. And I was, I think he was pissed off at himself. So I... I'm pretty sure I'm okay in, in, in criticising him and saying that he should have done better there. Yeah, I think you're right. That, that is an area he, he needs to develop. I think we saw in the first half of the season, I think we as Arsenal fans saw how great Saka was, but he was missing some chances like that. I, th- I think of one 
away at Leeds when we were down to 10. He had a great chance there. Um, he, he had one against Man City. He had a few chances. And for the neutral, for the rest of the league, because he wasn't putting away those goals and, and some of those assists, he wasn't getting noticed. And then that sort of spell where we sparked into life at the start of the calendar year, he really got on top of his finishing and, and started to nail the final ball a little bit better. And it looked like that had all come into his game. But um, I think it's it's not there consistently yet. And But we know what he's capable of and he's, he's still so young. Um, crazy potential player. Uh, and I think, you know, it's just a case of he's had quite a lot of minutes. I know Arteta's come out and said that he will be talking to Southgate about his use of Saka during this international break. So that'll be interesting uh, to see what comes of that. Because I know in the previous international break, Saka ended up playing most most of the football there. So he's played a hell of a lot since Project Restart and he is a young young kid. So hopefully he's looked after. Um, let's touch on the second goal, which was all... Well, it was an Just own quick goal. quick one. Shout out to Callum Chambers for that absurd pass to, to, to Lacazette for that chance. Yeah. Right? It's ridiculous. Yeah. Like, I don't know if he meant it to go directly to Lacazette, but it looked like he did because he pointed towards the space in behind. And Lacazette started running, and then he's just—it was ridiculous. Pass. Like sometimes Callum Chambers does stuff where you're like, you know, if Sedan did that, that'd be pretty, pretty good. Um, and then he gets rinsed by like Montero, and you're like, oh, I don't know if he's kind of Premier League level. So strange player. Yeah, wow, that that is great praise. But I mean, he did have a very good second half. That pass was one of them. The next one was obviously his assist for the own goal, if you like, um, got forward again on that right-hand side. I don't know what West Ham were doing. They were giving him a lot of space out there, um, a lot of lack of protection. And I think it was an Odegaard pass to put James in and he kept giving him the ball in that position. I think Odegaard got the, the pre-assist, which is the pass before the assist for all three goals, I think. Um, yeah. So he was really crucial in this second half turnaround. Uh, Carl, what did you make of that goal? Did you like what Odegaard started to bring more so in the second half? Yeah, I, I touched on it earlier about the positions he was getting in. And I think that's one thing that Odegaard and players like Saka as well provide us is that they make those sort of killer passes in the final third, the passes that you that are, that are risky and, you know, more often than not are probably, you know, not going to come off, which is fine. You're going to, you, you take those, those, those risks in the final third, but he also provides a lot of technical security in tight areas. So he picks up balls in spaces and players collapse around him and he knows when to play off to players in space, or he can wriggle out of spaces and turn um, and attack. And, you know, that second goal is a good example of it. Basically him, um, I think he played the reserve, sorry, reverse ball to, to Chambers, who did well to get up and, you know, basically read his intentions. Um, and yeah, I just, anytime Odegaard gets in the ball in the final third, he's probably going to make a right decision. You know, I, there was times earlier um, where I got slack, or I think it was earlier uh, in the Olympiacos game where I said he was kind of disappointing, and then he obviously smacked one from 25 yards. Um, but those those kind of areas is that, you know, he – he just makes the right decision. And for a player who's 22 years old, you know, it's, it's pretty rare. And then you have Saka on top of that. And um, just those areas, you, you, you find him in those areas because he's going to make things happen. And that's basically what he did. He, he took the game by, uh, by the scruff of the neck. And from a player on loan, um, mm -hmm. who obviously, you know, he's been here for a couple of months now. Uh, it's, it's really promising, you know, obviously 
hopefully we can make it um make it a permanent deal um who knows what real hopefully real Madrid didn't have access to the the match footage um so can brush yeah. that one <laughs> yeah i think you make a good point that you know this is a lone player of all the players when you're 3-0 down and you played 2 days ago and you you're playing every 3 days of all the players that you not forgive but you know you could sort of excuse for folding in those scenarios you think uh, a lone player but you know he was the one who really stood up and as i said earlier i think without him we, we potentially collapse and and lose that game quite embarrassingly but he really dragged us through the game uh, arteta's talked about his leadership qualities on and off the field and i think what we're seeing now is the players start to respect him a lot more i think when he struggled in a couple of games just after his arrival we picked out that you know his teammates weren't getting him the ball when he was in the right positions but i think they're starting to learn to play with him and we're really seeing the benefits of what he can do and and what really excites me as well as what he does on the ball and as carl said is excellent decision making i think as well as that his his physical abilities i think he he presses well when yeah, he's he under he was our third uh he he was the player on um our third uh most uh he pressed pressed West Ham third most um mm. of our NA players and the other two the top two players were Tierney and Chambers, which is obviously, you know, their fullbacks. Um yeah. he put the players under most the uh, most pressure. Um which is very promising. You know, you know we've uh we've had we've had a number ten with a with a funny spelling of his first letter of his first name who did mm-hmm. uh did not uh, didn't do very much of that uh, in recent years, so um, it's it's you know it's good to see from that sort of player. Yeah, and I think it's intelligent pressing as well. And another thing he he sort of has for me over the other player you mentioned is his actual physical uh, approach as well. I think he he protects the ball a little bit Santa Cazorla esque um, mm. off the opposition. He manages to sort of turn in tight spaces, even when he's got sort of two players on him. There was a number of occasions uh, in the last few games where he's found his way out of those tight spaces. And it reminds me a little bit of what Cazorla used to do for us. And I think that shows that he is really suited for the Premier League, which is where some people had question marks uh, when he arrived and whether yeah. a young player could do that. I mean, he's, yeah. he's just sensational, isn't he? Like, yeah. he's, just so, he's just so fucking good at football. Okay. Do you know what it is? Like his first touch is always so good, Carl. It's ridiculous. Like, has have you ever seen him where the ball even gets like smacked into him or it's bad pass? The first touch is always set up for him to do something very progressive with the ball, which is why he's added so much for us. I think it was. I think it was the Olympiacos game where I think someone smacked the ball from him from like twenty five yards, and it reminded me of a touch that Santi Cazorla did. Yeah, where he brought it in with the outside of his foot and just brought it down right in front of him um he did that like three or four times against West Ham because obviously when he's in those tight spaces and how compact West Ham were um you you have to force a, a ball in there to get it into those tight spaces and you know he he does it when he's on the half turn so he's receiving on the back foot and he's already able to to uh to face up play and just another thing with him on the ball is it was something that Ozil didn't do a lot of in his, his final years at Arsenal was as soon as he got the ball he would basically accept that that was where he received it. So he would just look for a pass instantly where Odegaard takes it and drives at players yeah. and forces players to collapse on top of him and make decisions. So, um, so weird comparison, uh, and it's not in terms stylistically or how they play football, but when, whenever Jack Grealish gets the ball, he assesses every single forward progressive option that is on the pitch. 
before yeah. going back. And I feel Odegaard does the same thing. And I feel that one of the frustrations I have with Aubameyang, sometimes Pepe, um, had it with Ozil again when he when he was at Arsenal, is sometimes the ball would get played into him and they're very happy to just pop it back off to the, to the centre-back yeah. of the CDM. And I'm like... Well, they're giving it to you. Like, Jack is giving you the ball to go and do something. Party's giving you the ball to go and do something. And we saw that party link up to uh, Odegaard a lot, where ball went into Odegaard. And the way, the reason he passed it to Odegaard was so much is because he passed it to Odegaard and things happened. He wasn't getting yeah. the ball back. Like, people, uh, players stopped passing it to Aubameyang's feet in the second half because it was just coming back to them and we weren't progressing the ball. So having a player who assesses every forward-facing option before they go backwards is, is super, super important. And I think it's a big reason why the first half of the season we struggled for goals a lot because we had a lot of players who were just like, you know what, I'll take the safe route. And Odegaard takes safe routes, but he does it in a progressive way, which is super important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super impressive. He's still only 22, 23. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah. think I jinxed it, didn't I, last episode saying we're going to end up playing like 40 million euros for him and I'm I'm scared. Like, I just, is it going to happen now? Like, are we going to be able to get him permanently? And uh, do we run a risk of building so much around him and then not getting him permanently? I mean, it looks like mm. he wants to stay though, right? Yeah. Yeah, I I think we're doing all we can to make him stay and, and there's no point sort of worrying about it now. Yeah. And I think what I said last week is even if we don't, we're seeing what a player of his ilk is going to bring to the team and, you know, the, the manager and the technical staff are seeing that. So I think it's going to be beneficial no matter what. And, you know, we've seen our route to the final now. He could have a big part in potentially helping us uh, win the Europa League and take us to Champions League football. And if he did that, and didn't come back, it would be a real shame because I think we can build around him. Um, but he'd still be a very successful low move for us, regardless of what happens. Uh, just just mindful of time, there was a flurry of chances that we could chat through um, at 3-2, where the game could have swung in either team's uh, favour at that point. Um, I think it's worth mentioning Arteta's substitutions, which... He quite often gets criticised for, but I quite liked what he did in this game. Um, he brought Smith Rowe on for Shaka, allowing Partey to be the sort of sole holder and play in sort of a Man City style with sort of yeah. two eight slash tens with Smith Rowe and Odegaard, which I thought was exciting to see. Did, there was a bit of teething there, though, wasn't it? I remember when it happened, I was like, we've just ruined the structure and it felt like throwing too many attackers on. For about five minutes, it felt a bit like higgledy-piggledy and then parties started to like uh, get more comfortable in it and, and mm. Odegaard started dropping a bit deeper. I think Smithrow was holding width quite well when we were kind of like in, in need of options out there. So it's it didn't work instantly, but it did work in the end, which I quite liked. Yeah, it felt to me that Partey sort of came to life after a few yeah. minutes of that structure. I actually of... think he was pretty poor for like 65 minutes, I have to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I didn't think he had his best game. I know statistically there's a load of stats going around about recoveries mm. and, and, and ball progressions and stuff, but I think he looked tired and clumsy for about 60 minutes, to be honest with you. But I think when he was a sole man at the base, he sort of took the responsibility yeah. and it felt like he was more comfortable there. Uh, and maybe that's something to think about moving forward as his team evolves. Because I think alongside Shaka, he's maybe looking to share the responsibility of something which which he quite likes to do at all. Um, so, you know, the team will have to evolve and get used to it if we change this that type of lineup from the off. And I don't think we're, we're there yet, but it's an interesting 
thing an interesting shape and interesting to see the impact it had on Partey because he'd started to fade towards the end of games recently for fitness but in this game I thought he improved um in the in the final sort of 20 30 minutes and helped us create an onslaught of chances um but let's jump to the to the goal 3-3 Pepe came on um was one of the other subs coming on for Saka I think it was a good good move from us and he created a goal he also missed two decent Mm. opportunities but I mean how did you feel about that Pat he's obviously offering something when he comes on he's making things happen yeah, I mean, I think I said in the last show, you never know what he's going to get with him, but he does make things happen, whether it's like by design or just out of kind of nothing. But I think that he, yeah, it was great, great cross. Really, really good cross. Uh, and, you know, uh, I like the way Lacazette peeled off the back. Uh, Dawson, I think, really struggled in the second half of West Ham. And it's it's an easy goal for him in the end. The Odegaard pass on at first, it looks like it's too heavy, but what you actually see is Pepe tries to come in a bit rather than holding his width. And that's why it looks like it's heavy because that's actually probably the right pass. If Pepe stays that wide, he doesn't have to break stride, but it's a really good uh, cross to kind of dig it out and and dink it over the defender and, and get it in. And then, yeah, I mean, at that point, I was like, surely we're going to win it. And I didn't think we'd win it for three. I think we'd go and score like another two because we were just getting in at will. And mm. after that, it was just like the Odegaard show, wasn't it? Like, I mean, it was for the whole game, but those last 15 minutes, he was just another level. And the pass he plays to Pepe for that chance he has on his right foot, like it's it's a like a 10 out of 10 pass. N- not that many players in the world can make, like Messi makes that pass and everyone claps. Mm. It's fucking ridiculous. Like it's a ridiculous pass. Yeah, the good thing about it is it, it forced Pepe to use his right foot because I think any more to the left of Pepe, Pepe would have sort of cut in on his left and that he might have might have done something equally as good there. But I think Odegaard saw two steps ahead. He saw that Pepe needed to to make that cross on his right. He saw Lacazette lurking. And we then saw the celebration, which I think was, was really interesting. And again, a big win for Arteta because moments earlier, he'd uh, substituted Aubameyang, which must have been a a tough sort of tussle yeah. on his head because Aubameyang wasn't having a good game at all. He was pretty terrible on Thursday as well. He was late last week, but he is your captain and you're looking to to give him confidence again. So he must have been wrestling with the idea of that substitution for a while. And uh, even though Martinelli, who came on, you know, sort of played no part in that goal, it was sort of symbolic to uh, uh, reward Arteta for that substitution when they all celebrated together. Yeah. As he was making his way back around the pitch. <laughs> yeah. It was um yeah, a good goal. And then I think the two chance the two main chances where well, we had one blocked effort from Ode- was it Odegaard or Lacazette? And then we had mm. Pepe on the right where he cut in with his left foot where he scuffs it, where I think he should do a lot better. And then I think with his right foot shot where he had that worldy of a pass from from Odegaard. Like it just kind of it encapsulates Pepe, doesn't it? Like he when you put him on, you don't know if he's going to drop a two out of ten or a nine out of ten. And then in the game, from a like microcosmic standpoint, he does some things amazingly and some things really badly. There's there's hardly ever an in between because gets this amazing pass from Odegaard, holds off the defender, and just swings his right foot and like scuffs it again. And you think if that's the winner, it's just like you know it, it's the the cream on on top of the cake, isn't it? Or the, mm. the icing on top of the cake when you have this Odegaard sensational ball. We've got the player that everyone's vying to to start in 
in Pepe cuts in and, and shoots and should do way better and make Fabianski at least work hard. Mm. I, it was a shame that we didn't go on and win it because I think I looked at West Ham and I know we were bad, but they were ragged. Like we, I know the XG stats were in their favour, but we we did score two own goals. So maybe Carl can tell us how how, how that works. But we it felt like we should have won that pretty comfortably, especially if you consider the mistakes that that well the one mistake that Leno made in the end. Mm. Yeah, Carl on XG because I, I noticed that as well, Pet. That I sort of rushed to to search the XG after the game because I felt like surely yeah. we would have finished ahead with the amount of chances we created, but. Cole, how does it work with own goals? And I guess, obviously, the Antonio chance. How, how did that score on XG? That must have been pretty high in, in itself. Yeah, so the, the own goal for um, the Suchek own goal is 0. 0.01. So it's basically mm. very – it's the, it's, a, it's a consistent own goal is because, obviously, it's not your chance created. It's obviously – I don't necessarily agree with it, but that's how it goes. Uh, so both own goals uh, were – cumulative of 0.02 so that's mm. why we have such a little even though you put the ball in good areas you're not actually shooting yourself on goal um it's different if it's deflected in um but if it's so clearly like the i think the dawson one was the one where he just thrashes it into his own net um <laughs> uh, yeah and then the suchek one must have been really high and same with the antonio chance that hit the post well i don't know how he missed but yeah, so Lacazette actually for that shot um, prior, the actual chance of it going in is 0.01, but Lacazette was given 0.07, which is oh, wow. okay. pretty pretty accurate. Um, point, yeah, yeah, 0.07. So um, that's a pretty accurate representation of that. Um, yeah. Mm. And, then, and, and a lot of the chances as well. The I think the Antonio one, uh, right at the end where he hit the bar, uh, stats while we had it at 0.88. Which is ridiculously high, um, and that's even included because we have stats. Why we have you know we have varying factors for goalkeepers positioning, the actual height of the shot, mm. uh, etc. So, um, yeah, um, we've actually got a question. I don't know if we've got time, Ollie, to to, to read yeah, it out. You can do um, it well. It's from at left foot curler. Um, he said Arsenal had a five v four overload in the build up. Why couldn't we play out from the back? Why did Leno decide to go long so often? I knew this was coming when, uh, you know, people calling for him to to go long. Um, but as I've sort of always said, and I think we were all quite consistent on previous pods when we discussed this issue, we weren't asking the team to go long. We just wanted them to get better at going short, essentially, <laughs> and, and do and going long at times when you've when you've created yourself a, a difficult situation but I don't know I, I definitely don't feel like we should be going long but I think perhaps Arteta started to give the players a bit more license and said to to make their own decisions when pressed too heavily maybe and, and we saw West Ham pressing very high um, and maybe it's just a sign of errors in recent games um, and Leno decided to sort of take things into his own hands. I don't know, Carl, do you think it was a managerial uh, instruction or was it something that the player sort of adapted to? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. I, I don't I don't actually remember off the top of my head how West Ham were pressing us in our initial build-up phase. Um, but I think a lot of that is obviously, um, you know, the errors that we've seen in the past. 
um, and how we like to split the center backs on the on the build-up phase. Um, it was actually they were pressing quite high, so Antonio was pretty central. Um, I think Lingard was man-marking party, um, and both our fullbacks were already high up the pitch, so our center backs were basically a basic outfall. So the only real way we could have actually bypassed that press was those little clip balls over the top, which I think Leno did try a couple times. Um, Especially the fullbacks. Yeah, sorry, yeah, the fullbacks were, were Chambers in them. Um, so any short buildup like we'd like to do to the to the to the um, to either Luis or Pablo Mari, um, we're inevitably gonna have to go long from there because they were they were marked. Um, you know, an open play was a little different, but in the first half we didn't really have many chances to actually, you know, set up an attack that way just because we are constantly clearing it up the field. Um, and in the second half they drop off their press, so we didn't really have any real issues in that. Um, mm. I wonder if some of it was born out of the fact that we'd made two changes to the back four as well. Um, I think it was touched on in the analysis after the game, but you know we've we've seen the benefits of rotation in the likes of the Leicester game, but I think we're seeing some of the negative impacts and why people don't really change the back four, the back five, very often, um, and perhaps there's a lack of confidence in the likes of. Marie, I think we've seen Marie and Louise didn't really have much of a relationship in that first 30 minutes. They seemed to be some accusational stares uh, at each other. Um, yeah. And I think we've got to start to think about relationships and bonds on the pitch. And, you know, we're asking with, well, what I'm saying anyway is play out from the back, but play with confidence and play at the right times. But it's a difficult ask when we're chopping and changing in that back line. I think it's the other reason is that we were so deep and that was primarily for two reasons in Louise loving just going really deep. I think Ollie, you talk about it a lot. Um, Marie is obviously more comfortable in that, even though he's, he's probably a bit better than, than Louise in that respect. And also West Ham tend to cross quite deep as well. Even if it's from deep areas, the ball ends up going quite deep into the box, if that makes sense. And it's kind of like a, a battering ram constantly pushing you back and you clear it, you try and step up, but you, your legs give way and you can't step up as much as you want to. The ball comes back straight away. I think West Ham were, as I said at the beginning of the game, they were pre- playing things really quickly, like throw-ins, corners, everything they were doing. Like They were getting on with it as, as quickly as you can. That, that furious intensity can really weigh on players and sometimes they just feel psychologically like they need a break. There was a few times, for example, I think Tierney got the ball um, after their attacks broke down and he just walloped it and a few times in my head i'm like oh just just kind of keep the ball give it to a bamiang mm-hmm. let him get a throw a few times we did that by the way like the ball went out to a bamiang he tried to break away got a throw that some of that pressure went off but a lot of the time our defenders were just like just just need to get up the pitch and need a breather and i think that was basically the reason is because we were getting absolutely hammered incessantly by crosses and 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 really high press squeezed uh, a high squeeze from from West Ham. So yeah, that, mm. that was probably the primarily reason that I saw that we didn't do it. And yeah, I mean, when Leno had the ball, I was still scared. But um, <laughs> yeah, as Carl mentioned, he was doing some of those clip balls to to a little bit uh, a greater ability. And I think overall we. Um, we should have done more playing out the back, but it was simply because the personnel we had was so deep and we were just kicking it long a lot uh, in terms of from a clearance standpoint. Yeah. And I think another uh, impact I'll quickly touch on is I think a lot of our playing out from the back traditionally comes from the left side. And I think it's quite dependent, even though Louise has been playing on the right, I think it's quite dependent on 
sort of the pattern of Louise, Xhaka, Tierney. It tends to be sort of how we, where we play through when we come out from the back. And um, two of those players in Xhaka and Louise, I think, you know, I've said before that consistently then they're, they're not at the right level. You know, they'll do, they'll do good for sort of five games and then drop a game like yesterday, which just wasn't good enough for where we want to be. Um, but I think also born out of the fact that they've played so often, both of them, that they couldn't keep setting the tempo for us. Um, and we saw the same with Tierney. You know, he's got no rotation option really there unless we put Cedric in. But then we'd have to change the sort of patterns in front of him as well. Um, so I think it was like three players who've played a hell of a lot in Jacka, Louise and Tierney. And they just didn't have the sort of gusto on the day to, to drive us forward. Right, we've been going for pretty much an hour. So we're at risk of not being labelled bite-sized anymore. <laughs> so we'll leave it there. We've got an international break now, um, but we will have some content coming for you during this time. You know, there's plenty more that we want to talk about. As I said, we could do a podcast on Arsenal's right-backs, <laughs> the right-back situation, and we could chat all day about Martin Odegaard and plenty more. So we'll have more coming for you but for today's is it too soon for a transfer window preview well i was going to say we we did one fine odegaard and pod <laughs> <laughs> we did one in december didn't we but even then we didn't get round to sort of talking about all the positions that we we wanted to so perhaps we and maybe those we'll sort of targets part. have changed you know maybe we don't want sanderberg anymore maybe we do <laughs> yeah, Just yeah. any 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 norwegians that are good let's sign them <laughs> Yeah, true. Whatever we can do to keep... keep I, I heard another striker who plays for Dortmund is pretty good, but uh, <laughs> his name slips my mind. Cool. All right, well, we'll leave it there. I've been PB. Thanks for joining us. And today we've had Pat. Yeah, you can find me at P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A on Twitter. And we've been delighted to have Carl back on the podcast from Statsbomb. Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at on Twitter at C underscore Carpenter 14. And you can find me PB at Ollie Price Bates on Twitter. And you can find our podcast account at Fresh Arsenal Pod, where we tweet out the opportunity for you to add questions. We also share some additional clips, which you might not be able to hear if you don't listen to the full podcast or any additional other content on FreshArsenal.com. Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.